I've started preaching from the epistle of James in our church and uh, preached two messages. The second one was last week and I'm preaching that this morning. And uh, when, uh, when I came to church last week, a lady came up to me and she said, oh, I'm really looking forward to the epistle of James. I said, oh, good. She said, yeah, it's short. <laughs> and I had, uh, over the last couple of years, preached through the book of Revelation and preached through the book of Hebrews and First and Second Thessalonians. So in relation to that, it is short. I, I said to her, well, don't be, don't be so sure. Wait till you see what text I'm preaching from this morning. So my first message was James 1 verse 1. And I said to her, it could take a long time to get through James. But we're not doing that. We're doing verses 2 through to 11. And uh, interesting way I came up with a title to this message. I used chat GPT. You're familiar with it? Artificial intelligence. And I typed into it, uh, give me 20 sermon names for James 1, 2 to 11. And they were all great. So I modified one of them, and this was, according to AI, the path to perfection, but I've changed it to the path to mature faith. So Lord, we just commit the word to you this morning, ask you to anoint it, anoint it to our hearts, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, in October, an October 2010 Time magazine article entitled the growing backlash against overparenting. A student from Texas reported that her parents flew out to visit her every weekend during the first quarter of her freshman year. Uh, these are the opening sentences in that article. The insanity crept up on us slowly. We just wanted what was best for our kids. We bought macrobiotic cupcakes, hyperallergenic socks, hired tutors to, for, to correct a five-year-old's pencil-holding deficiency, hooked up broadband co connections in the treehouse, but took down the swing set after the second skinned knee. We hovered over every school playground and practice field. Helicopter parents, teachers christened us, a, a phenomenon that spread to parents of all ages, races and regions. What makes otherwise capable people into helicopter parents? Fearing that all hardship is harmful, that every unknown is dangerous. This condition is the flip side of pride that says I take credit for all my accomplishments. Both arrogance and vulnerability are interconnected aspects of the same mindset, two sides of the same coin. This double folly is contradicted throughout the entire Bible from beginning to end. We are not the rulers of the universe and we are cared for by one who intends that we have life in abundance. Normal people do not enjoy trials. 
In fact, most of us do everything possible to avoid the trials of life. However, James is writing to people who were well acquainted with the pain and challenge of trials. Most of these Christians had faced severe trials, even to the point of losing their homes, their jobs, their security within a community. Many of them faced not mere inconvenience, but the very survival of life itself. James teaches us practical principles regarding how to profit from trials. These principles are as relevant for us today as they were for believers in the early church. When life's hardships come our way, they are to produce good, not damage, as we grow in faith. Consider some of the images in the New Testament. A gardener prunes a vine so that it will be fruitful, John 15. A wise parent disciplines children, Hebrews 12. A fiery crucible purifies gold, 1 Peter chapter 1. Faith grows when it is tested. James' instruction on this theme begins with his typical bluntness. He says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Faced with a hard situation, most of us begin to hope that God will alter our circumstances, that he will intervene, maybe with more money, an altered lifestyle, new friends, a better job. And in order to bless us, what is required is that we be changed. If God were merely to deal with our circumstances and do nothing to help us grow, he would be a helicopter parent, not a loving father. His goal is mature faith, faith that has been stretched, weighed down, surrounded by unknowns, and forced to limp instead of skipping ahead. Now, according to James, mature faith is overwhelmingly worth the pain that is required to gain it. Therefore, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Now, trials are seldom met with joy. However, James not only instructs us to face trials with joy, but pure joy. In the Greek text, the word translated as pure is the word pas, P-A-S, which is a primary word meaning all, every, whole, thoroughly. James is telling us not to fake it. We should have a joy which is neither contrived nor forced as some impossible religious obligation. On the contrary, we should have pure, unadulterated, all-encompassing, thorough joy. It should be the real thing. Now, the second word we need to explore in this passage is the word trial, from the Greek word parasmos. The root of that word means to assay, to examine, to put to the proof. A biblical and theological definition might be, 
an external adversity which provides a testing towards an end. For example, this is the word used to describe the exciting adventure of a young bird testing its wings. It's the word often translated as temptation, as in Jesus' prayer to the, that he taught the disciples. But parasmos is not temptation in our sense of the word, it is testing. Queen of Sheba was said to come to test the wisdom of Solomon. God was said to test Abraham when he appeared to be demanding the sacrifice of Isaac. When Israel came into the promised land, God did not remove the people who were already there. He, let them, he left them so that Israel might be tested in the struggle against them. The experiences in Israel were tests which went to the making of the people of Israel. One of the greatest promises regarding such trials is found in 1 Corinthians where Paul says in chapter 10, no temptation that is trial has overtaken you except such as is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Parasmos trial means stress testing something. We are put beyond our competence when we encounter a trial. As a result, we can't resort to familiar approaches that used to work. We can't call up latent reserves of strength. We can't talk our way out of a jam. So how does such stress bring positive change? Well, James walks us through this process and I want to make four observations from this passage, which is up on the screen, two to four. And the first is this. Having faith and being tough is not the same thing. Developing toughness does not require the presence of God. Consider common wisdom. Common wisdom says when the going gets tough, the tough get going. Common wisdom says whatever doesn't kill me makes me strong. Well, armies, orchestras and sports teams all improve with hard taskmasters who demand maximum effort. But that very ordinary human process is not what James is talking about here. The issue for James is faith. God is not testing our courage. He's testing our faith in these trials. When Jesus' disciples were in the midst of a frightening storm, they woke him from sleep with a question don't you care if we perish? Faith is tested when we wonder if God truly loves us, when we wonder if he keeps his promises. Perhaps on a personal level we question whether we've exhausted the grace of God. Well, be convinced the grace of God is inexhaustible. Random hardship can be met with personal courage, but a believer has to face the question of whether faith in a God who could intervene and chooses not to is ultimately foolish. Can we trust God when we lose sight of all evidence that he cares? Sometimes trials make sense to us. Disciples may be persecuted for righteousness. 
Paul notes in Galatians 6.17, I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. Ridicule, rejection, closed doors of all kinds may occur because we are faithful to Christ. And even though the hurt may be great, such suffering makes sense. Also, consequences that flow from sinful choices are not unreasonable. A compulsive gambler may resent his poverty, but his condition doesn't lead to questions about life's unfairness. However, random blows and scattershot trials raise questions. Why me? Why now? And so on. Natural disasters, earthquakes, tidal waves, etc., are not caused by human choices and are not evenly distributed across the globe. On a smaller scale, a, a child's lasting illness, a terrible accident, a traffic jam that keeps you, keeps you from a critical job interview, a parent's dementia, can all make us question God. We want answers before being willing to trust him. However, God knows what he's doing and he doesn't need to explain himself to us. Now, let me also note the phrase in verse 2, my brothers and my sisters. James does not teach from a high pulpit. He stands next to us, having learns, learned faith's lesson the hard way as we must. Trials that make sense and those that don't are occasions for faith to be tested and grow strong. Now, my second point in these few verses, there are many kinds of trials. A third word that we should explore in verse 2 is the word translated as various or many kinds. It's a form of the Greek word poikilos, which means many-coloured. The plumage of birds is said to be poikilos. A leopard's skin is said to be poikilos. It means many, varied, in other words, several kinds of trials. Now, I want to suggest three kinds of trials. I've touched upon them. I want to be a bit more specific now. The first is what we could call the cause and effect trial. Uh, it's a type of trial that adheres to a basic principle of Scripture which teaches us that we reap what we sow. Galatians 6, 7. Many of the trials and temptations that come into our lives come through our disobedience. In fact, James teaches us about that, about this error in some detail later in this chapter. We play with fire to see how close we can get to a given sin without being burned. We sow what we reap. The second variety of trials which we can face as believers is the spiritual trial. Peter tells us not to be surprised or don't think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you. And he goes on to say that if anyone suffers as a Christian, let them not be ashamed, but let them glorify God in this matter. 1 Peter chapter 4. Now, this confirms Jesus' teaching when he said, in, a world, in the world you will have tribulation, but in me you will have peace. John 16. Also, Jesus told his disciples to remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. 
if they have persecuted me, they will persecute you. There is that kind of trial which comes simply from living the godly life. The person who follows Jesus as Lord and is a citizen of his kingdom will sometimes be out of step with their society. He or she is the bearer of light in the midst of darkness and often those in darkness dislike the light and those who bear it. Third, there's a kind of a trial which we could call the spiritually mysterious trial. Without a doubt, this is the most difficult trial of all. The most difficult for us to accept and to express pure joy concerning its attack on our lives. The problem is that there is simply no rationale or logical reason for the trial, or at least not, not one that we can identify or understand. Uh, this is the kind of trial faced by Job. He lost his livelihood, his health, his family, his place in the world. He was wracked with physical pain, subjected to loneliness. His friends were convinced that Job was facing the trials because of hidden sin in his life, while his wife was certain that it was God's fault. Job refused to accept either of those analyses. He cried aloud, he wrestled, he struggled, he stumbled, but he refused to relinquish his faith. He refused to let go, let go of God in his wrestling. Job asked many of the right questions, but he still didn't understand the why of his trials and suffering. Even at the conclusion of the book of Job, he does not understand the reason or reasons for his suffering. And in the end, having gone to the depths, he soared to the highest place, to a grand vision of the nature of God and what it means to know him. Job's faith was tested and the result was a new certainty that God is good. God does give Job the solution that is proper for every form of trial. The solution was that he commit his utter trust and faith to God. He acknowledged the mystery of God's ways not being our ways and committed himself to his faithful God who is always to be trusted. My third point, don't fake happiness. James says, consider it pure joy when you encounter trials. Joy and happiness, of course, are not the same thing. We should recognise testing and joyfully receive it because we know that God is at work. It's ultimately going to be for our good if we trust God. But we don't have to paste a smile on our face, a fake smile. We don't have to pretend that it doesn't hurt. We don't have to act like we're not confused when really we are confused by the chaos that's around us. In an article I read just recently, it was entitled Five Surprising Facts About Widowhood. And the author says this, losing a spouse is one of the most difficult of life events. Now, many have noted one of the hardest parts of losing a spouse is coming to church alone not knowing how to answer well-meaning questions, not knowing when a painful memory will occur 
or how friends will react to an emotional roller coaster. We need to be sure in this case and all others that genuine faith is compatible with pain. And genuine faith is compatible with unanswered questions. Being real in God's presence is evidence of faith. My fourth, fourth point, the end, the goal is maturity, completeness, lacking nothing. God is not the author of evil suffering or trials, but he has a wonderful capacity to use them for our good. Apostle Paul wrote, and we know that all, in all things, that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. You know the verse, Romans 8:28. Now, within this context, James contends that there is a very practical result of facing trials with pure joy and with deep faith in Jesus Christ. Trials lead to perseverance. The testing of your faith develops perseverance. Verse 3. Now that word testing in the Greek text is doikemion, which literally means proving or trying. It's the word used by Peter when he writes about the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honour and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1. Now this kind of testing can be compared to a refiner's fire which burns out all the alloys from the precious metal. God allows this testing in our lives. He uses it for our good. And as we commit ourselves to him, he allows the impurities of motive and conduct to be removed from our lifestyle and he leaves in their place the wonderful gift of patience or perseverance. Now notice where this testing takes place. James refers to it as the testing of our faith, verse 3. The testing which God allows to take place in our lives is at the place of greatest spiritual significance, our faith. It's by faith that we come to God. It's by faith that we follow him. And it's by faith that we receive his wonderful promises, including life eternal. And as we are tried, our faith grows. We trust God more fully in ourselves, less fully, Indeed, this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. 1 John chapter 5. The testing of your faith results in perseverance or patience, the quality of unswerving constancy or endurance. It's not passive patience, which might be confused with laziness, but it's active patience, which denotes steadfastness, staying power. This is the attitude referred to the Apostle Paul when he wrote that tribulation produces perseverance, Romans 5.3. And the writer of Hebrews uh, counsels us to lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us. And that sin for the Hebrews, the Jewish Christians, was because of persecution, the, the possibility of going back to the sacrificial system. 
And so the writer is saying, cast aside, lay aside the sin which so easily ensnares us. Let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus. God invites us to trust him with all that we are and realize that even the testing of our faith is for our good. It develops perseverance in our lives. But perseverance is not the final destination. God intends more than a thick skin and a steady hand on the wheel. The goal is maturity, completeness. We are intended to gain Christ-like character. The mature believer has learned that when I'm weak, I am strong. He or she has discovered the abiding power of the Holy Spirit, not a harder gritting of the teeth, the abiding power of the Holy Spirit. And, and such a person will say with John the Baptist that Jesus must grow greater and I less and less. I will not shy away from admitting weakness. Finally, the disciple who is complete, lacking nothing, chooses ministry to others, delighting to give away what he or she has received. So James has told his readers that if they use all the testing experiences of life in the right way, they will emerge from them with that unswerving constancy which is the basis of all the virtues. But immediately the question arises, where can I find the wisdom and the understanding to use these testing experiences in the right way? No person in themselves possesses that wisdom. And so James goes on. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all of his ways. Often our experience when being tested is not resistance to trusting God. It's just confusion. Thrust into unfamiliar surroundings, we don't know what steps to take next. And James tells us to pray and ask God for wisdom in trials because he gives it generously. For James, the Christian teacher with a Jewish background, wisdom is a practical thing. It's not philosophical speculation. It's not intellectual knowledge. It's concerned with the business of living. It's turning knowledge into action in the decisions and personal relationships of everyday life. So we are to ask God for the steps forward. But there's a caveat. We cannot ask God for help in order to evaluate its usefulness. God's wisdom cannot be one opinion among many. Seek God, ask my friends, do a Google search, then choose the course that suits me best. Such double-mindedness will prevent us from receiving anything from a generous God. Only when we have already decided to obey will we be given the generous provision of the wisdom of God. Now, to be clear, 
We may struggle to understand what God says, what he intends for us, but let me say, this struggle is not doubt. This is not what James is warning us about. James is warning against an aloofness that suggests we can treat God as a benefactor who may or may not merit our approval. If we are to use rightly the experiences of life to develop a mature Christ-like character, we must ask wisdom from God. And when we ask, we must remember the absolute generosity of God and see to it that we're asking, believing that we will receive what God knows is good and right for us to have. As James sees it, Christianity brings to every person what they need. Let's read on. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation, because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass, its flowers fall and its beauty perishes, so also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuit. The simple point, in the context of trials producing mature faith, is that we should expect our familiar understanding of things to be turned upside down. The brother or sister in poverty discovers the enormous riches of Christ as their faith grows. They define themselves not as by worldly standards, but by their high position in the kingdom of God. The rich brother or sister learns to appreciate that they are a sinner saved by grace rather than take notice of the passing status offered by the world's wealth. Now let me conclude. My conclusion is as long as my message. No, I'm just joking. Jesus has no interest in being a helicopter parent. Protecting his loved ones from every difficulty, removing every obstacle, lifting every burden, driving away every risk. In fact, it's the Lord's gift to allow circumstances that are too much for us. We should joyfully receive them because it's by those very encounters that the firmness of God's promises are assured to us, that confidence in his character is reinforced, that our loving welcome with his arms around us is made plainer and plainer to us. He says, draw near to me and I'll draw near to you. There's no conditions. What he's saying, you draw near to me and I will not back off ever. After a night of prayer, Jesus chose 12 apostles, men who would become both teachers and examples of faith. Immediately, he called the 12 together and gave them authority to banish demons, to cure disease, sending them out to preach the kingdom of God. He told them to take nothing for the journey, no staff, no bag, no bread, no money, no extra shirt, a dangerous and unpredictable assignment. Challenging evil, illness and ignorance with no resources except Jesus' power extended to his followers, they returned filled with joy and strengthened in their faith. Jesus continues to allow such assignments for our good, 
Consider it pure joy when you face trials of many kinds. The first commission of 12 apostles to a dangerous assignment reminds us of the great commission that applies to everyone found in Matthew 28. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. The great promise at the centre of this charge is, I am with you always. But we discover the truth of this promise only when we put it to the test. Therefore we say, thanks to the Lord, when the world is too hard for us to manage. And we don't know where to turn. And our hearts cry out for wisdom. And the outcome is uncertain. And God proves himself faithful. I want to close now uh, with a benediction that contains a smile. Larry Hine uh, was the spiritual director of Brennan Manning. You may or may not know Brennan Manning. He's a Franciscan monk, an author. He wrote the book Abba's Child, which was a bestseller. It's a great book. And Larry Hine delivered this benediction at Manning's ordination service. And this is what he said. May all your expectations be frustrated. May all your plans be thwarted. May all your desires be withered into nothingness. That you may experience the powerlessness and the poverty of a child and sing and dance in the love of God the Father the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this passage, for the wisdom that James brings to bear upon our lives and upon our circumstances. And Lord, we know that uh, we often want answers before we're willing to trust. Lord, but you've told us we walk by faith and not by sight. We've sung this morning that one day our faith will be turned to sight. But Lord, until that day comes, we are being stress tested. We are being challenged to persevere, to go on and like Job, to uh, have fresh revelation that God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. Even when our feelings may be one of pain or of confusion or all kinds of negative things, Father, we thank you that we have a rock, we have an anchor, we have one to whom we can cling, the life-giving one. And Lord, we thank you that without sight we can exercise faith, trust, because you have promised never to leave us nor forsake us. You are our loving Father. You're not a helicopter parent, but Lord, you're absolutely faithful and you are always working for good. And we give you thanks in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you for the opportunity to come. And I hand it back to the man with bare feet.